That is a prayer, I hope, of all the people who are alive in Christ. May all of my days bring glory to your name. And this morning's sermon is a providence of God for God's people to faithfully live that out. May all of my days bring glory to your name. You can stay standing. I would invite you to Romans 16, verses 3 through 7. Romans chapter 16, verses 3 through 7. Romans chapter 16 and verse number 3, where we'll start, the word of the Lord states this. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who's worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet, uh, I'm sorry, that's verse 8. We'll end there. You can be seated. Children, if you're headed off to children's church this morning, to junior church, you can, you can go. Um, the title of this sermon is The Fellowship of the Kingdom. And it is admittedly uh, a title that was designated based on a thought I had about the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, you know Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring. And in that particular novel, there is a scene where a council is gathered to try to determine what must be done with this one ring. And it's agreed upon that they would form a fellowship of nine. And there are nine comrades who will set out to carry this ring to Mordor and cast it into the pit there at Mount Doom. And as you watch that movie or read that novel, you see how important it is that there was a fellowship form. And there are gospel undertones throughout Tolkien's work. If I could just add that if you're not familiar with it, there is a scene right at the end of the series in video where this figure named Schmeagel is battling for the ring. And the last scene in the conflict is that Schmeagel has the ring in hand and is falling to his doom in the pit of lava with glee on his face. I, I just want to point out that I think that's effective imagery. Friends, there are people who will have the sin they wanted more than anything else and have glee on their face as they plummet into eternity in the lake of fire. That's a powerful visual of just how horrible sin is. The fellowship of the ring survives. 
But you're left wondering, what would it have been like if it had been a one-man rogue mission? Even Frodo, right to the end as the fellowship starts to unravel, if not for his closest friend, you wonder if he would have survived. His gardener. The fellowship listed here in Romans 16 is a gift given to Christians by a God who always provides what we need. The gift of fellowship is a gift given by a God who always gives what we need. Um, Paul is giving the longest list of relationship greetings that he gives in any of his letters. But could I ask you to just think with me about an alternative list? Look with me back to, I think it's the end of 1 Timothy, but possibly 2. We'll know in just a minute. It's 2. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is the last writing from Paul before he's martyred as a follower of Christ. He's writing to a young pastor, a man that he's mentored. And he says this in chapter 4, verse 9. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. Paul wrote this. Do your best to come to me soon. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He says in verse 11, Luke alone is with me, so get Mark and bring him with you. He's very useful to me for ministry. He talks about sending other people off to minister, and he is expressing his frustration, maybe even discouragement, that someone he was a fellowship and ministry with has abandoned him because he loved the world more than the ministry of the kingdom. This man named Demas. So Paul says to his good friend, his fellow in the ministry, come quickly. I don't like that we're alone here. That's an alternative to Romans 16. One where his group feels thin, lean, And in Romans 16, he says, wow, I'm encouraged by this great group of fellowship in the kingdom of Christ. There's 24 fellow gospel ministers who are named. There's two who are mentioned but not named specifically. Barclay notes that it should be significant to us the number of women mentioned here. There are blank women mentioned in Romans 16. Are are there eight or are there nine? (laughs) We're going to try to answer that by the end of the day. And it might take us all day. That is in tune with this work of the gospel in us. The fact that there is this fellowship. I mean, really, if, if we had sent one of you off to minister and you were gone for years and you wrote a letter back You would mention people here that ministered with you, that you're thankful for. You would mention men, women, people who held office, people who did a function without a title. This is normal. It's normal to being part of this gospel faith family. We're we're thankful that we're fitly joined together. Not every one of us is the ear or the eye or the nose or the hand or the feet. 
but the body is made up of all sorts of diverse parts. So it's normal to us that he would mention other faithful co-laborers. And it's also normal that the gospel ministry isn't limited to certain gender or class of people. Galatians 3.28. There is faithful gospel ministry going on among people who are enslaved, people who are free, people who are Jew and Gentile, people who are men and people who are women. So Paul gives this lengthy list of greetings. One commentator appropriately describes this list of people as a galaxy of saints. That's good. A galaxy of saints. All different. None of them doing their own thing, but operating in cooperation. And all of them revolving around the sun. So we looked at the first part last week. In chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, we saw a woman by the name of Phoebe who had the title of servant in the church at Sancre. This section, as we start studying today, we're going to look at four elements of fellowship that we have when we do kingdom work together. Four elements that we share when we run like this together. But before we do, I I want to point out that what's described here is the effect of the transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 12, verse 6 says this, Having then gifts that are different according to the grace given to us, let each of us use them in prophecy, in proportion to our faith, in service, in our serving, the one who teaches, in his teaching, the one who exhorts, in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So we are fitly joined together in the gospel of Jesus Christ, contributing different things, as we revolve around the sun. So let's talk about four elements of our ministry fellowship. Let's, let's begin with the first one. We see it exhibited in Prissa and Aquila, and that is life-altering fellowship. Prissa and Aquila. She and her husband are mentioned a few times around the work of Paul. This Prissa is Priscilla that we read about in Acts 18. This is a, uh, Prissa is the more formal version of her name. These are tent makers. They probably were in Rome when the emperor Claudius said Christians had to leave. Paul does meet them in Acts 18 back in Jerusalem. These are the first that he says he wants to greet as a couple. He and his wife, as I mentioned, are probably driven out in 49 AD, and he meets them in Jerusalem when they were from Rome. Paul meets them in Corinth, and when he set sail for Ephesus, they were such close friends that they went with him. And Paul goes to Ephesus. Now, you know what happens in Ephesus, in Acts 19. In fact, just turn your Bibles there real quickly. I would invite you to let your eyes kind of run over Acts 19. 
because I think Acts 19 gives us an explanation of what Paul means when he says, wow, I'm thankful for these fellow ministers. They stuck their neck out for me. I think he's probably referring to the time when they were together at Ephesus when a riot broke out and they were demanding that Paul be put to death for preaching the gospel. This friendship was so close that it wasn't based on convenience. It wasn't based on enjoyable hobbies. It was based on something that was going to outlast hardship, even to death. I wonder if you are or if you have fellowship in the gospel of Christ that you think would be there even in the threat of death. I wonder if you think that you are that fellow or you have that fellowship. She, in particular, uh, probably Roman nobility, Prissa. Four of the six times they're talked about, she's mentioned first. They're active in Paul's ministry, even when Paul's ministry was really ugly, like it was in Acts chapter 19. Paul says this, they risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks too. Think about that. Paul says, I'm grateful that when it looked like I might be overtaken and put to death, you were there even intervening. They, they risked their necks. In other words, this wasn't like what Peter did in the garden or even at the trial when the young servant asked, oh, yeah, you're with Jesus. No, no, this, this is not that. They risked their, they put themselves, they inserted themselves, intervened, stepped in front of those people who would like to end Paul's life. They intervened, they stepped in. He says, not only am I thankful for that, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Why not just say all the Christians? Well, Paul is a unique apostle. He's an apostle to the Gentile church. Paul is carrying the news of Jesus to non-Jewish people. And therefore, the fact that he continues to do that because he survived the riot at Ephesus, the Gentile churches say, thank you, Prissa and Aquila. We're glad Paul's not dead. And he says this. This tells us a little bit more about this couple. Which, by the way, maybe one of the most notable expressions of their Christian maturity is when they come to Apollos and help correct his mistake. Apollos basically was um, a little naive about the doctrine of the Trinity. And Prissa and Aquila pull him aside privately. They're humble. They're not wanting to raise their hand and go, I know more than you know, and I want all the church to know. But they have a private conversation. Hey, let me, let me commend that to you. Next time you're in core seminar and you want to point out what a core seminar teacher got wrong, do it the way Prissa and Aquila did it. After class. That's a, good, that's a good example. I would just say pastorally. How many people are willing to critique publicly 
but when invited to come privately and have coffee, not so much. Not this couple. They pull Apollos, and Apollos is a, man, this guy can preach. And they pull him aside and say, hey, uh, you got this little hole in your theology. And he's helped. And they even send a letter commending him to the next town he goes to. Like, it's okay. Uh, Yeah, he's human, but it's okay. This couple has a church in their house. Paul says, greet also the church that is in their house. Paul sent his greeting to the congregation that met in their house as well. Let me, let me say, I'm going to end this point and move on to the next one, and that is I want to say something about the church meeting in their house. This life-altering fellowship meant that their home was going to operate different. It was going to be a church. And I want to just say a couple things. First of all, church homes or home churches were commonplace in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, Colossians chapter 4. Obviously, the growth of the church doesn't depend on a building. Isn't that true? Uh, It is true. It's okay. I was thinking about the next thing I wanted to say. Some of you will have vague recollection of this account. Uh, A leader had declared he was going to come put a statue of his wife in a church. How many of you right now think, oh, I've heard this. I know where you're going. Some of you, some of you have heard it. Yeah, you, and you know where you heard it, right? Me too. Okay. So a leader said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come and put a statue in your church of my wife because I really think a lot of my wife, and I think this great, beautiful church would be a great place to have a statue of my wife. And the church is like, no, we are a church. We don't do that here. Well, yeah, it's going to happen tomorrow. This beautiful old church that this political ruler thought, well, this is a, this is a great monument to where I'm going to put this statue. Overnight, the church people burned their beautiful church building to the ground. They burned it down overnight. And sent a message that this church is not going to be about your honoring. It's not going to be about this building. This church is about these people. So I would just say, as he says, greet the church in your home. It was common in the New Testament to have churches that were in homes. And church buildings are certainly not necessary for church. However, I also want to say a word before we move away from this statement, greet the church in your home. There are a lot of home Bible studies that are trying to masquerade as churches. I want to be clear that when the New Testament describes for us church, that that church will be elder-led, mission-sending, worship-giving, and ordinance-observing. Getting together and possibly singing and maybe studying the Bible doesn't make you a church. This fellowship in the gospel altered Prissa and Aquila's life. This fellowship wasn't just something they also did one day of the week. This changed how they operated. How they saw their home, how they saw their friendships, how they saw their life. A minister of the gospel is in danger. One of our, one of our fellow ministers is in danger. I will step in front of people who are wanting blood today. It shapes our life. I, I just wonder, as we look through this providence of God, that we have fellowship with each other, I wonder what things we learn from Prissa and Aquila. Let's go on to number two. 
There is spiritual fellowship in this fellowship of the gospel. He says in verse 5, the second half of the verse, Greet my beloved Epinetus, who is the first convert in Asia. Paul has an affection for this man, the special person to this missionary, like the first person to come to Christ. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament, but Paul cares deeply for him because he is a spiritual brother with Paul. Since his name is Greek, we can assume he's a Gentile believer. 1 Corinthians 6.15 says that the the first converts from Asia were of a household of Stephanus. Listen to what he says. Paul writes this earlier in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I urge you, brothers, you know the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they've devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So be subject such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice in their coming to me because they've made up your absence. They refresh my spirit and they'll refresh your spirit. Give recognition to people like these. (laughs) The first converts in Asia. This guy's family, probably. And Paul says, man, I love being around these people. And you're going to feel the same way. You just love being in the joyful fellowship of the kingdom of Christ with them. And that's really all we know about him. Let's look at number three. Joyful laboring fellowship. In verse 6, greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. There are six different Marys mentioned in the New Testament. This one has a unique reputation for a long time. She has worked hard for you. This emphasis on labor faithfulness, a reputation of being consistent at the work of the gospel is mentioned again in verse 12. There are three more women in verse 12 mentioned as fellow workers working hard How true it is, right, when we look around our faith family and we see the testimony of Christ working through women who really work hard at ministering the gospel to each other. That's true here. And it doesn't surprise me that Paul mentions it. This gospel labor has already been described to us, this This new way of worshiping God in Romans chapter 6, verse 7. So it's not surprising we have this list of gospel application because we already have studied the gospel doctrine. Romans chapter 7, verse 6. We have been released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So in other words, there is this labor that happens, but not because it has to happen for God to approve of us. We're not under the law. We're not working to please God. So, he goes on and says in the second half of verse 6, we serve in a new way of the Spirit, 
Not in the old way of the written code. We do serve, we are actively participating in the fellowship of gospel work, but according to the Spirit working in us. There is joyful, laboring fellowship in the ministry of the gospel. Number four, there is fellowship deeper than circumstances. Let me, let, me just, let me just beg your attention to the point. Let me, let me re-read the point. Fellowship deeper than circumstances. I wonder if we could attest to that. If we would say... The people I run with in gospel work are there no matter what the circumstance. I'm not talking about our Facebook friends. I'm talking about church. The people that we, God's plan for gospel work is a group of people to work together as a community, a church. And then another church to work together as a community, as a church. I wonder if you feel like, I got some brothers and sisters in church who God has done this through. Like our fellowship is deep, deeper than circumstances. So he lists these two people, Andronicus and Junia. Now, uh, you could say Junias, which would change everything, or Junia. Andronicus and Junia. Paul talks about them as uh, kinsmen. He might be referring to actual family members. They might somehow be related, like third cousins to Paul. Or he might be referring to spiritual, like these are my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not sure. But he says they're fellow prisoners. This couple had spent time in prison with Paul somewhere, and they didn't quit. They didn't stop. I mean, this is an easy shot at Americans, right? It's just easy, and it's to me too. Like, do you think it's possible that any of your Christian friends that you're pursuing kingdom work together with will stick with you through something as inconvenient as prison? <laughs> right? Like, like, that's not something we even ever think about. We're concerned like, okay, on this Sunday, we did the pastoral prayer after the second song instead of the third song. I wonder who's going to put up with that. <laughs> you know, and I mean, of course, I'm being facetious. But we wonder about things on that level. Paul is saying, this couple, they're here even though we're in and out of prison. Okay, let's talk for a little bit about Junia. I think it's helpful. I, I can just speak pastorally to you uh, because there are some people who would try to... You know what proof texting is? Uh, proof texting is when a person goes to one or two verses and says, see, that makes my point. Um, proof texting is almost never good Bible study, but it happens a lot. And some people will go to this text and say, see, Junia is an apostle. And if 
Junia, the wife, is an apostle, then why are we so hung up on women being pastors or elders? Because they were women apostles. Hmm. All right, let's pray. Right? Because there are people who will, who will take you to this text and say, she's a woman. And she's a popular apostle. Now, if you're using an ESV Bible, you don't see that right away. Let me, let me just point out. If you're using an ESV, it says that she's well known to the apostles, or they, both her and her husband, well known to the apostles. But if you're using a New American standard, which this might cause you to reconsider, it says that she's outstanding among all the apostles. Like, like she's the best apostle. <laughs> all right? So, moral of the story is, join the ESV bandwagon. Um, I'm kidding. Several of you who I really respect use New American Standard. Um, and I think, I think the New American Standard is actually making the point clearer here. I think the original language is made clearer here in this statement. She, they, he and her, husband and wife, outstanding among the apostles. Now, we could certainly go on and labor over the syntax of her name. Literally, if you add an S at the end of her name, it's most likely, almost definitely, a man. And so this would be like, like brothers, maybe. Um, just best friends, neighbors. Hmm. And we might be tempted to do that. Like, just insert a little S. The problem is, patristic commentators, like, like early church commentators, all communicated that this was a woman. She was the wife of Adronicus. One commentator says this, a number of contemporary writers can be definite in their opinion that this reference to Junia is a woman. We can firmly conclude that one of the foundation apostles of Christianity was a woman and wife. Wow. Well, that would change everything, wouldn't it? Except the problem isn't with her name. The problem is with what is an apostle. That's the real consideration. I think it's okay for the ESV translation to say, this couple, this guy and his wife are outstanding among apostles. I think that's fine. Because we're assuming, we're inserting presupposition. I say apostle, and you say Peter, Paul, the twelve, the names over the gates in the New Jerusalem. You're right. But that's not all of them. We assume there are twelve apostles. There are a bunch of apostles. Paul talks about several of them. So we have this presuppositional application to the word apostle. Therefore, we try to reconfigure what junia is. Paul often uses the title apostle in a looser sense, denoting a messenger, or the most practical application of this would be a commissioned missionary. Paul acknowledges that they were in Christ before him. Listen closely now. I'm going to give you a little history that I think is going to communicate my settled conclusion about the use of the word apostle here. Andronicus and Junia were likely among the early Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem that were saved. 
coming into Christ before Paul. Just like Peter and his wife, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, that Peter and his wife are traveling around as missionaries and they are supported for their mission work so that both of them can live by the work of mission. So Andronicus and Junia, they move around eastern Mediterranean areas seeking to bring people to faith in Christ. So, Beyond the unique 12 apostles of Jesus Christ, there are also apostles in this generic sense. Listen, it's frequent in Scripture. Barnabas is referred to as an apostle in Acts 13 and 14. Andronicus and Junia are referred to as apostles here in Romans 16. Greek word apostle used to refer to Titus, who's a pastor. Not an apostle, but he is a commissioned missionary. In 2 Corinthians 8... And in Philippians 2.25, other places where Titus is mentioned as an apostle. Because he is a commissioned missionary. Not because he is one of that unique group of 12. So the term apostle here should be understood in the wider sense. What we might think of as a missionary or an evangelist. So the passage really does little to prove the point that women should be leading the church. I think it's used that way out of presupposition. What exactly would the role of an apostle outside of those 12 have been? Like I said, the closest thing we would have is a missionary, someone commissioned by the church to carry the good news of Christ to people who don't know Christ. As fellow missionaries, which we could call Paul a missionary, as fellow missionaries... They had found themselves sometimes in jail together. But they didn't abandon the fellowship. This fellowship that we will continue to study, take your Bibles back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. At the introduction of this description of how righteous God is in the good news of Christ, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This gospel is the power of God to salvation. And and we, we read about this husband and wife who's traveling the Mediterranean region and being thrown into jail for preaching Christ. And my mind goes back to Romans 1.16, the power of God to salvation is at work in them. Persecution, putting your neck on the line, standing in front of a mob who wants to murder one of your Christian friends and saying, you're going to have to go through us. The power of God at work in them. So, what I mean, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. Salvation. What what I mean, friends, is that we tend to think of one element of the gospel. That the good news of Christ rescues me from having to go to hell. But between the moment of justification, as I see it, and the moment of heaven, the gospel really has no application for me. We, we We could be guilty of that. Like, I'm not going to be guilty, so I go to heaven. The gospel. 
Romans 1.16 is the description of why this group of fellow Christians lived the way they lived. They had been set free from feudal, worldly gluttonies. And so they had churches in their home and they put their necks on the line. They're in and out of prison. Because when their unsaved captive souls had said take pleasure in whatever the world can afford you they had been set free from that and said no nothing I'm getting here is satisfying I've been saved from that trivial emptiness and so a Christian fellowship like this is what comes out of that being saved For in that salvation, the righteousness of God is revealed. Christ's gospel transforming people to to extraordinary fellowship. Perseverance together. Not Demas, having loved this this present world, abandoned me. But Christ creating in us a sort of fellowship that just doesn't fall apart. What a good gift from God. This fellowship that's listed here, the fellowship that we're even thinking about in our own life right now, those men and those women who you say, I am so thankful that they're in my life because without that, I'm not sure I would make it. I, I will tell you, I remember a day about four years ago. Um, this is not in my notes. And I know it's very transparent. And I hope it encourages you. We had had an early morning elder meeting. And I, I think I've shared this with you guys. Um, we had an early, early morning elder meeting at a coffee shop, and I had driven back here to church, and we had talked about some really, really heavy stuff. And there was just some stuff I thought, man, I don't know if I can navigate this. And we pulled in, I pulled in, and I was on the sidewalk from my parking spot to the doors, and I had this thought, plain as day. If I weren't one member of this elder team, I would stop. I would just quit. I mean, I I think... I think I'm a pretty gifted person. I think I could sell washing machines. And it would be less work. And I remember I was walking up the sidewalk, getting ready to unlock the office door, and thought, I really am thankful I'm not in this alone. Like at that point, Ben and Chris and Gary, Will. I think Will was here. I think that was the reason I was feeling that way. Um, I can joke that way about Will because there's no way that's possibly true. Um, uh, I'm thankful to God for that providence, knowing that I'm one member of a brotherhood that is absolutely in it together. And that day the Lord reminded me, you are really not cut out for all of this, but your group is. So I'm really, really grateful for that fellowship 
I hear Paul saying it, and I hope you are that fellowship and that you are ready right now to recognize that you're enjoying God's providence in that gospel fellowship. Would you take your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1? I want to finish with this text. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. So, so before I read this, I'm going to read 5 through 11. And before I read it, I want to make clear that as we talk about this fellowship, I'm not commending to you how nice it is to have good friends. I'm, I'm not commending that to you. Um, I don't, th- I don't think Paul says he loves having this group that he plays Scrabble with. Paul says when he, he, he described Acts 19 once as saying he fought the beasts at Ephesus. Paul saw himself fighting off bears in spiritual warfare. And Aquila and Priscilla stood there in front of him. And said, all right, we're in this together. As I read this, I want you to know that this sermon is not about how cool it is to have good friends. I think it's about 2 Peter chapter 1. Make sure I have that right. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge. Knowledge with self-control. Self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection with love. That, That deep relational element. All the knowledge, all the faith, all the virtue. Don't do it in isolation. Brotherly affection. Love. Verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective, unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten. He was cleansed from former sin. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That text is about Christ and spirit-powered sanctification that is the growing of each Christian in perseverance. I want you to understand that perseverance is absolutely essential to Christian identity. There is no Christian who isn't persevering. If you're not sure that your testimony is a Christian testimony, I would encourage you to look at perseverance. And here he says perseverance 
is provided for us. It is a God thing being done in part through brotherly affection and love for each other. God using our fellowship in gospel ministry to keep us from becoming fruitless, ineffective. If you let yourself wander off into isolation, you can be sure that you'll be a target of all sorts of shipwrecked faith. But if you're increasing in these qualities, you will not be unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is about Christ in us, before us. Christ's kingdom, his work of saving us, his work of knitting us together. This is a good gift from God. If, if you don't have this fellowship and gospel work, and maybe you don't want this fellowship and gospel work, I just want to mention it's very alarming. To not desire that brotherly affection and love is a serious concern about your place in the ministry of the gospel and therefore your place in Christ himself. But we run this race together because God is the giver of good gifts. And we run it together as a church. A church I would say this last thing, a church ministering to the church, but a church ministering outside of the church as the church, okay? I want to say that again. When I talk about faithful gospel ministry, we do that together. We teach Sunday schools together. We do small groups together. We do discipleships together. But when we venture outside of this, and do ministry, I would still commend to you together. So in a couple weeks, uh, Craig and Peggy, Peggy, it's good to see you. I'm glad you're on the men. Craig's going to come, and he's going to give us an update on Bridge Street Mission in a few weeks here as we look forward to taking our Christmas offering for Bridge Street Mission. And I, I hope several of you will put your, and I know some of you already are, several of you will put your hands to the, the ministry of Bridge Street Mission. But pastorally, I would encourage you to take someone with you, from here, with you. There are other Christians. You've got Christians from all kinds of churches ministering up at Bridge Street Mission. My pastoral recommendation is that this fellowship of the ministry includes other brothers and sisters from your faith family going hand in hand up to Bridge Street and ministering at Bridge Street Mission. So we fellowship in ministry together here and together out there. So that's my pastoral encouragement to you as you persevere in God's gifts. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for all of these faithful Christians. We are surrounded by a great testimony of faithful gospel ministers that have persevered as you have worked in them, keeping them, guarding them from fruitlessness, from shipwrecked faith. You are the giver of that good gift and that gift comes to us sometimes in the form of brothers and sisters in Christ who are steadfast 
They are unmovable, and they are always abounding in the work of the Lord. And you have been good to place those people in our lives. All of us this morning can think of encouragers who have run with us for various seasons, and maybe some of us can even think of brothers or sisters in Christ who have run with us faithfully from when we had first believed even till now. Lord, we're grateful for them, but we know that it's you who gives and sustains us in the joy of Christian service and ministry. So we praise you and we're thankful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.